0: hello and welcome to another episode of a Brothers creed podcast we're we talking about motivation experiences and exploring the world around us we're the Thomas brothers and I'm Ethan
1: and I'm Jared thanks for joining us today we're gonna talk about the uh, some stories of, of valor uh, and this is a it's an interesting kind of concept or attribute uh, that I think is sometimes overlooked in our modern day but Uh, I think there's plenty of examples all around us of people demonstrating valor. Uh, So we're we're excited to share some stories. Uh, Most of my stories aren't actually war stories. Uh, Are yours, Ethan? Uh, A couple of them are. So uh, anyway, we'll we'll get a little bit of a mix here, so it should be good. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump in. All right, let's do it.
0: Spartans, what is your profession? man who must say I am the king is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change, and you can change. Everybody can change! Let us all unite!
1: Let us fight for a new world, a decent world.
0: All right. So... As Jared said, we're going to be talking valor today. So I went in and I kind of looked a little bit about the definition of valor. What is valor? And, and, and valor is really, you know, just kind of thinking of it from from what I, I knew and understood of it. It was just uh, being brave, right? And I think a lot of times that's compared to... Um, uh, that's just compared to, like, war and battle-type situations. But mm-hmm. I think there's lots of different situations and scenarios where people can be uh, valiant, right, which is kind of the, yeah. the action of valor, that they can have valor. So valor is great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. Yep. Um, and then I looked up valiant, someone who's valiant, and it was possessing or showing courage or determination. Yeah, uh, which but, I which I thought was interesting. That
1: is interesting. You know, determination to keep going. I, I found a couple of definitions that I, I liked. Um, there's one Latin saying which, when you're saying things in Latin, it always makes you seem so much cooler.
0: <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Uh, you know. Molon mol- labe. Exactly. Well, actually, I don't think that's Latin. I think that was Greek.
0: Oh Greek. I think it was. Greek. Uh, yeah.
1: But this is a Latin. So uh, it's virtus in actione consistit, uh, and so virtue and action is consistent. So it's a, the, what that means is not virtue, valor lies in action. So I thought that was cool. Like you cannot have valor and be someone who is, uh, not doing anything or, or lazy. So I loved that, uh, little saying, uh, maybe they should get a tattoo across the underside of your arm with that or something. Valor lies in action.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting that that kind of reminds me of something that I've heard from several different, uh, Several different people, whether it's uh, Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or you know some of these other people, that they say the the measure of a true man is not in his uh, you know his inability to do harm. The measure of a true man is mm-hmm. the ability for him to do harm and choosing not to. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like you know being weak and not being able to to do something is not you know you're not, you're not virtuous not, because not, not, you can't yeah, hurt people not virtuous because you can't do anything it's it's a
1: virtue when you can and you and you don't because you choose not to because i mean how many people out there would just love to absolutely go out and kill as many people as they could but how many people can do that but they don't because they actually have morals you know <clears throat> there was another yeah. quote here that i have uh this is from michel de montaigne uh i probably butchered that but it's an old guy uh, valor, oh, the Count of Monte Cristo. Yes. Uh, valor is stability, not of legs and arms, but of courage and the soul. So I think it, just kind of taking the part piece out about not of legs and arms, he's saying valor is stability of uh, courage uh, and the soul. So stability of the soul, stability of your courage. Uh, I, I like that. It's It's more it has more to do with the core of yourself than it does how strong you, how just your legs or your arms or or how much you talk, it's it's done in action, and it's that core of you that drives that action. Yeah. Also, I, um, uh, oh, go ahead, yeah. When
0: you finish your, finish your thought.
1: I was going to say, also, uh, as many people well know, uh, old Bill Shakespeare, <laughs> as Tommy Boy would say, uh, he, he, uh, was famously known for saying that the discretion is the better part of valor, uh, which means that sometimes avoiding uh, a dangerous situation or unpleasant situation is the more sensible thing to do. So the better part of valor. You don't necessarily always have to go fight. Sometimes it's having the discretion to walk away. And I think that's, you know, you go back to like what Jocko talks about. And he's like, you know, that's why he talks about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And he's like, you know, if someone's trying to fight me, I can always just run away from him, but he's like, if I'm on the ground and someone's on top of me, I have to fight, uh, and that's where jujitsu comes in, and that's why he thinks it's you know so powerful. Uh, and uh, but so in that situation, the discretion to run away uh, is you know valor in a sense uh, or the better part of valor, as old Bill says.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and he's a perfect example of someone who can do something and jack some people up. Oh yeah, but. Would probably choose not to for for a lot of different reasons because he knows his capabilities mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to get sued. He doesn't want to hurt somebody, you know, beyond the self defense or whatever else it might be. And so, oh, yeah, your, your most powerful weapon is your is your legs. Imagine getting a punch away. straight to run the, away, straight to the mouth from Jocko. You know, that'd be you'd be knocked out. Man. Yeah, <laughs> getting a getting a Joe Rogan sidekick right to the face. Oh gosh. He's supposedly he's got like a really powerful kick.
1: Oh really? He's got that Muay yeah, tha- like, Thai. Muay like, Thai. He's been practicing probably.
0: Yeah. Like like hardcore. Like I think high one of the highest in the industry. What do you mean? Um, oh, highest kicks? No, like highest power kicks in the industry. Joe Rogan. Yeah. What industry? Yeah, look it up. This is crazy. Just yeah. like in in all of kind of yeah Muay Thai and and I mean he doesn't fight MMA but he trains. Huh. And uh, yeah, look at what he's got. It's crazy. Okay. Um, so it, it it's uh whenever I think valor and bravery and being valiant, it always kind of brings me back to the to the young boy scout Ethan, and I remember as a kid reading Boy's Life magazines, and we'd always get them in the mail because we were we were Boy Scouts growing up, and it was this magazine that came, and it just had a bunch of different stuff in it. Well, somewhere in the, kind of the middle of the magazine, there was always this. It wasn't like a comic strip, but it was like a an animated story of someone who did something brave. And this was anything from, you know, uh, a Boy Scout. And they were always Boy Scouts, right? A Boy Scout who uh, saved his friend from drowning or who, um, you know, uh, helped keep uh, his little sister away from people that were trying to kidnap him or, uh, you know, helping little kids find their parents or I I distinctly remember one where there was a group of people sitting in the cafeteria in high school and this kid pulled a knife and was trying to stab people with this knife and the, the, the Boy Scout, the heroine in the story, and these were all true stories he uh kind of you know told everyone you know get away and, and he kind of talked this kid out of what he was doing and then ended up wrestling and grappling with the knife and then getting it away from him and and just kind of like heroic situations yeah and so those those always were like super like it, it, they, they impressed me a lot and I remember I was probably like not thirteen 14 years old and I remember I was over to friend's house and there was a cat that was stuck in a tree, and this cat was like a little kitten and it was stuck stuck super high in this tree and we were uh, trying to get this cat out of this tree, and uh, you know I had climbed up there super high and it was kind of a dangerous situation and I'd gotten like a bunch of stuff in my eyes and so I couldn't see and I remember what? when I was climbing down from the tree I was like I was like they're definitely gonna write about this in Boys Life magazine. <laughs> Maybe that was just my pride speaking, but I was like, oh, oh, somebody's got to write this into a boy's life magazine. You know, this was such a brave thing that I did, you know, to save this cat. Stupid, like little kid daydreaming stuff. That's hilarious. It was funny.
1: Hey, well, I think that, you know, it's good. Uh, I think men and boys should, even women should aspire to do great things and take great actions. Maybe, maybe not, uh, stupid actions or, (laughs) but still, uh, that's cool. That's a cool story. So, do you have? Uh, do you want to? I have two two main stories that I can share, and uh, I know you have a couple. Maybe I'll start with. Uh, I actually have three. Uh, I'll start with one of mine. So, this is. Uh, I've been watching the news recently, and have you heard about what's going on in China right now? Uh, with the like, like the COVID stuff. Yeah. So they're trying to do like zero COVID
0: policy. And they're locking everybody down. Uh, I saw these things where they were driving like these fogging trucks through the uh, through the streets and like like spraying chemicals, fogging the whole city of like oh yeah, that's gonna kill everybody.
1: Yeah, and so there's all these people who are fighting back against this like army of like people in COVID gear, which is absolutely insane. Uh, And there's people that are really fighting back against this, and they're you know people in the streets of China chanting, you know, you know, replace Xi Jinping as, a, as the president. Uh, Apple, uh, even, the company Apple, they were, the, the the country's got, the Chinese government has everything social media is so shut down that nobody can share anything. So what people were doing is they were getting on their iPhones and they were uh, doing uh, photo drop, like, you know, how you can airdrop stuff, airdrop photos? Yep. And they were sharing things that way. And they were, things were going viral through airdrop and the the Chinese government told Apple, Hey, you need to cut this service off. So Apple cut that service.
0: Oh, I'm sure they said, okay, whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. Right away, right away sir. Right away. Did you, did Joe Biden tell you to do that? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Oh yeah. Joe Biden definitely has uh,
1: got his <laughs> knees. He's neat. Knee- you heard about the Twitter files that came out, right? Oh yeah. We should do an episode. We should on do those, an episode man. just on Twitter files. Uh, but anyway, so this this whole thing these people are fighting against this these are they're get, literally getting locked in their homes they're getting welded they will weld shut the doors to their apartment complexes so people will stay in their homes and they're they are making these these camps they're like these quarantine camps so they'll just drag people out of their home and throw them in these camps I mean it's crazy tyrannical government type stuff
0: I I saw a video of uh people all in like COVID gear and in masks and like full body suits and stuff and they were uh they were breaking down these people's doors, like with battering rams. They were just coming in and just busting the doors open and running in and and like dragging people out. Oh,
1: yeah. I saw one video and then there was a guy. So this is kind of getting time point. And he was walking down the street and he was just like holding up a sign. He was like, there's more of us than there is of them. And we need to stand up free from freedom. And they're actually people chanting like, give me liberty or give me freedom or give me death. Like, where have we heard that before? Right. That sounds Uh, familiar. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these people are like, hey, we want to be free. And this guy was walking along the street saying this and the police grabbed him Uh, and and people were all just standing around kind of filming. And they're like, oh, man. And they grab him and they're trying to shove him into this police car. And he's just screaming and his lungs out. And they got there's a picture of it. And he's like just screaming, you know, and it's like, wow incredible oh, good. You know? never never be heard from again yeah so it made me think that you know that guy was showing a lot of valor uh and when i think about china specifically i think back to the tank man do you know who tank man is
0: the mysterious... Oh, Tiananmen. yeah, the guy in uh, Tiananmen Square. Exactly.
1: So uh, in 1989, there were a bunch of protests similar to where there is right now in Tiananmen Square, which is in, in Beijing, China. So it was a kind of a student-led protest that was against inflation, the inability to participate in the political system, uh, as well as against corruption of the government, and also for free speech. So a lot of what... I mean, it's probably worse now than it was then as far as what the government was trying to do. So martial law was enacted, and the Red Army with over 300,000 troops were mobilized to Beijing to squash this thing. The Red Army moved in through the city uh, and into the square where thousands of people were protesting and there were a lot of bystanders gathered as well. So the Red Army would arrest hundreds and at one point they just began to shoot automatic weapons into the crowd, just killing hundreds of people, wounding thousands. And 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 a stunning show of valor, uh, one man stepped in front of a column of four Type 59 tanks in an effort to stop their progress. So there's a very famous video which is absolutely wiped clean in, in China. You probably you, It's like totally censored, but there's these four tanks coming down the road. And this guy who's got like groceries in his hands... Uh, he steps out into the middle of the road and stands right in front of these four tanks. Probably anybody who's uh, older has almost guaranteed seen this, but maybe for some of our younger listeners, this might sound like something new. But he he stood in front of these four tanks in a solo effort uh, to stand up to a repressive regime. It was quite the example of of valor in my mind. It's something that he did as an act of defiance and just simply putting himself in front of that. And also the tanks stopped and they they kind of try to wiggle around him, but he just kind of steps to the side and stands right in front of him. He steps right to where they're going, He's right in front of those tanks. And think about those people that are in the tank. You know, They're like, oh, do I, are we going to run over this guy who's just standing there? Uh, so it's kind of a, a conundrum. Uh, it almost speaks to the humanity of the people in the tanks stopping and saying, are we really going to run over this guy? And uh, yeah. just more details on that, what exactly happened. So very few details actually exist about that man or who he even was. So on November 28th is when this year uh, is, is when these major protests are happening. Someone commented that everyone thinks that the Chinese people are afraid to come out and protest, that they don't have the courage, said this protester. And he said, actually, in my heart, uh, I also thought of this, but when I went there, to a protest that was happening, this was in 2022, I found that the environment was such that everybody was very brave. Uh, and so I think it's just so interesting that that kind of defiance, even though it's been tamped down since you know the 80s, it's still alive today in, in mainland China and not just Taiwan. Uh, and right now the Chinese government is also starting to mobilize some of their armored tanks and stuff to quell this rebellion. People have sent videos of, of tanks and heavy vehicles moving uh, and so, you know, to anybody, any of our brothers in China that may be listening, more power to you. Keep fighting the good fight. And your example of, of valor is not lost on us. Uh, I don't know if, there's any, if we have any listeners in China. We're probably censored in China. Yeah, definitely you know, censored. I hope that we're censored in China. <laughs> but anyway, uh, definitely a cool thing to look at brave men and women around the world standing up against tyranny.
0: And, and not only standing up, but standing up in knowing that you could potentially lose your life or that you could get suicided or that you could disappear forever. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know That that definitely yeah. takes bravery. But
1: they don't even do it under the guise of suicide. They just outright shoot you in the street because no one's going to do anything. You have no redress oh, of grievances. Yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> That's a good story. Um, <clears throat> so I had a, a story about um, uh, a boy, so this was in 1991 and there was a young man who was a, a senior in high school, and his name was Chris Ericks. And he was sitting in math class one day, and there was a, another boy uh, who came into the math class at uh, Stevens High School in Rapid City, South Dakota, walked into math class. He told the teacher, get out. And then he ended up, he held up, The other 22 students in the class, including uh, this uh, Chris Ericks, he held him hostage with a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun for four hours. Uh, He had all the students crowded in the the corner of this room, and the kid with the shotgun, uh, his name was Ryan Harris, he... Somehow was on the intercom system with the police from the room, and he was making all kinds of demands. He wanted pizza and cigarettes and a million dollars, and then he wanted a helicopter to land on the roof of the school and take him away. And then, and he was uh, he had fired this uh, sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. He had fired it several times in the room, and he made sure that everyone knew that he had plenty of ammunition. And so he shot the chalkboard, the ceiling, the window out, and all this kind of stuff. So all these kids, all these other 22 kids, are sitting in kind of the corner of the room. But then, for one moment, this Ryan Harris guy, the gunman, he put his gun down in just a kind of a lapse of judgment uh, so that he could do something with both of his hands. And Chris Ericks saw his window, and he jumped for the gun. And so they ended up both kind of trying to get hands on the gun and they struggled for a while. But then the, the senior in the class, Eric's, he ended up winning the tug of war and overpowered the gunman ended up taking the gun away. And then obviously he, you know, he pointed it at the kid and then they, they announced that, Hey, you know, we got him and and the police came in and everything else. But in 2011, which this was like, was this, 20-something years later, they did a, an interview, kind of like a story piece on this guy who saved all these kids in this class. And they interviewed the police chief of uh, that time. And the police chief said, to this day, I am so proud of Chris Erick's for having the courage to do what he did to bring the situation to close. It was 20 years later, the police captain still... Uh, kind of remembered that and had such like a, a, a fond memory of that. So, hmm. um, you know, you, you had said earlier, you know, you don't want to put yourself in danger, you know, put your, you, to, you don't want to die potentially trying to do something, but I think it yeah. kind of what we said, it depends on, it depends on the risk. You know, you got to outweigh, you got to weigh the risks, but you know, it depends on the reward, I guess is a sometimes better way to say that. Uh, and, and saving yeah. people and finding your window and, and taking action immediately you know uh, that's that's uh uh pretty cool pretty cool that uh someone had kind of the guts to to stand up to someone in the face of potentially uh you know getting shot or whatever else yeah
1: that's cool it kind of reminds me of one i didn't really cover but those guys who were on that train in like the t- the, the americans three americans that were on a train in like france some dude comes out of like the bathroom and yells allah akbar and he pulls out his AK, and, and these dudes stormed him. Uh, and I think one of them got shot in the arm or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, but I, took do, I remember that. Yeah, I think we talked about that on one of our episodes. Yeah. But that's a cool story. One of the next ones I wanted to share was, and this one's a little bit long, but I think it's pretty interesting. There's a, a story uh, about, and this is this isn't necessarily someone who went out and was, you know, fighting a battle or anything, but uh, definitely the bravery and the valor that it took to do this. So this is a story of two teenage young girls who helped hide 13 Jews uh, from the occupying German forces in their town in Poland. So the story is of, these 14, is of a 14-year-old named Stef, Stefania uh, and her little sister begins in 1939 when the two children were working. They used to work for a Jewish family at a grocery store in Poland. Uh, and then, when the Germans invaded uh, their father he was he actually died of an illness, and their mother and brother were sent by the Germans off to work in a in a camp by the germans so left these two girls, a fourteen year old and her younger sister uh, alone and the two girls who had jobs at the local uh, they they actually got jobs at the local factory because the Jewish uh, grocery store they got work got shut down and these people these Jews got sent to the ghetto. So these girls got jobs at the factory and did all they could to help get people out of the ghettos. And so they would actually sneak children out and others out, and they would hide them in their house. In fact, one of the guys who escaped was that owner of that grocery store that they used to work for. And so the girls knew that the punishment for harboring Jews was death, but they couldn't just stand idly by and let these trains stop by those, that ghetto and take people to Auschwitz and Belzec death camps. So they would, the trains would come by, they would load up a bunch of people from the ghetto, take them straight to Auschwitz and this other death camp, Belzec. Uh, yeah. So absolutely terrifying. And at the time, they probably didn't even know what it was. They probably only heard rumors, but obviously not a place you, where you want to be going. These two girls ended up hiding 13 people in their attic, uh, one of which would be her future husband of Stephania. They had been taught when they were children by their parents that we are all children of the same God and so they decided to treat everyone that way. Now, they worked hard uh, to find food, because imagine just feeding yourselves or two little girls in a, in a place where food is scarce. They had to work very hard to provide enough food for them and the 13 people that were living uh, up in their attic hiding. So they did sweaters, they worked various different jobs, and they're able to provide those hiding in their attic with some food. So interesting a little bit about the life in the attic. So it's, Life in the attic for the group of 13 was a mixture of boredom and fear. One of the group, Janek Zimmerman, also wrote about everyday life in hiding. He said, We didn't talk to each other at all in the attic. The tin of the roof was hot during the day, and it was cold at night. During the day, we stayed in the hiding place or went downstairs. Any attempt to go outside could end in denunciation. Uh, from time to time, they would go out into the garden in the evening to get air and stretch our sore limbs a little, stretch our sore limbs a little. So, I mean, it was just absolutely brutal living in that. Uh, At one point, two German soldiers came to the house, told the two girls, hey, you got to vacate this house. We need this house. And the girls were panicked. They didn't know what to do. And so the father of that Jewish family that was running that grocery store, he looked at them and he said, you girls just run, just go. And they said, you know what? No, uh, we're going to stay here. And, And they actually all came together and they said a prayer. Later that day, soldiers came by and said, uh, you know, you're lucky. Uh, we're only actually going to need one room from, from, the, from your house. And two German nurses came and stayed in the house in one of the bedrooms. So now, imagine having two German nurses in the house that you're in. You're hiding 13 people in the attic. Uh, the German nurses stayed there for a few months, and at one point, a German soldier came into the house, and he even tried to go up to the attic, but he kind of made him lose interest in doing that, so he he didn't go in. The Germans eventually were pushed out of that town, and those in the hiding place were able to emerge a year after they had been gone into hiding. So it was a full year that they were in hiding. And so I just think that the valor and courage displayed in the face of such danger continually over this course of a year. I mean, sometimes, you know, you think, well, you know one act of valor, you know standing out that I think is sometimes a little bit easier to do than continued valor, under constant threat of of being caught, a constant threat of being uncovered. you know that takes some stamina. And so I think it's so cool about that and then that they were able to save those people from being murdered uh, in those camps. And eventually she uh, you know her husband was was one of those that she had to uh, rescue, so I thought that was uh, really cool. They actually wrote a
0: book about this, uh, so really cool story. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, can you imagine the? I mean, we can't imagine, but like the the how how fast your heart would be pounding if like the German soldier was like, "I'm gonna go check out the attic," and you're like, yeah. "Oh, freaking out!" You're like, you know, I've got to think on my feet. What, you know, what do I say to get this guy to to get disinterested in in going up to the attic? And yeah, yeah definitely. I have another one here. Uh, from the Holocaust as well, and this one is a lady named Irina Sendler. And this is a great example of of what I think is bravery and and, and valor and courage. So um, this was during uh, the time the Nazis invaded Poland, they rounded up all of the Jews and they created, like you said, Jared, some uh the, the ghettos. So they created these big walls around the ghettos, and it was just like a massive neighborhood prison that uh that the Jews at that time were uh were forced to stay in. So she knew what was going on in these in these Jewish ghettos and, and what the the Nazis were doing. So she's actually a social worker. And she went and she got credentials to become a nurse so that she could go into the ghettos and help people out. So first, she started actually sneaking in food and medicine into the ghetto so that she could uh, help the people that were, you know, sick and starving and everything else. Well, eventually, this the sneaking in food and medicine grew into her sneaking out little kids. Um, And so she would take little kids and they would be sedated. She would sedate these kids and place them in the bottom of her toolboxes or kind of laying in burlap sacks at the bottom of her trunk that she would wheel in and out. And... Then she once she got to the other side of the ghetto out of the ghetto, then she would uh, hook up with some other people that were like-minded people and they would ship these kids off to uh, Christian orphanages uh, and s- basically save their lives. Hmm. And she ended up sneaking out 2500 kids out of the no ghetto. Way. Wow. Yeah. By by sedating them and putting them in the bottom of her trunk or under her skirt or you know whatever she could do to sneak these kids out of the ghetto, twenty five hundred. I mean, geez, the guards are like, what's going on? Where are all these people? Yeah. <laughs> there used to be kids yeah, all over like, the place. <laughs> that lady, you've been back and forth like ten times today. What's going on? Yeah. So eventually, she was, was uh, caught by the Nazis. They imprisoned her. They tortured her. They broke both of her legs, but she survived, and when the war was over, she devoted her entire life to reuniting all of the kids that she had separated with their families. As she was uh, sneaking these kids out of the ghetto, what she would do is she would write their names on a piece of paper, and she would put it in a jar, and she buried that jar in the backyard of her house. And then, you know, after the war, she went back and, and dug up this jar and she did everything she could. She dedicated the rest of her life to, to reuniting these kids with their families. And honestly, it was it, it kind of proved to be nearly impossible to do so. And I don't think they actually many were returned. Yeah. Crazy, crazy story. Crazy. Like, I mean, that that's valor right there. Uh-huh. That is doing something good at risk and courageous at risk of your your own safety just kind of like you know the other stories yeah. that we've talked about
1: yeah it's it's funny how we cho- we we chose basically <laughs> the same exact story but a little bit different yeah uh yeah. it's so true I, I think that prolonged, like that 2500 kids it's amazing
0: yeah and i guess they were i don't, it didn't say, it it didn't say what ages they were but i mean they had to be mm-hmm. had to have been pretty small if she was able to sedate them. I guess if you sedated a, a four-year-old and crumpled them up small enough, you could get them into a bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's crazy.
1: So I have I have one more story. Uh, I don't think I've told this on the podcast before, but I may have because I think it's kind of a cool story. So this one is a story of El Pipila. Hey. So El Pipila is a story of a guy in Mexican Revolution. So this is the Mexican Revolution in 1810. Against the Spanish, so during the Mexican Revolution against Spain, the, in the city of Guanajuato, Mexico, uh, which is where I lived for a time and when I was in Mexico, uh, the Spanish had taken refuge in kind of a a stone grain house at the center of the city, uh, and the town had been a mining town since the 1500s. In fact, there are still mines. There's I think two mines there that are still active from that time period today. And so many of the of the townsfolk were miners and native people who wanted freedom, freedom of speech, freedom from Spanish, uh, f- just freedom broadly. And the granary was made of stone and was the only weak point on this granary. It was like a, it's a big square. Think of it just a big square building with like that's like a wall about two stories high, uh, and the only weak point on this building is the wooden door. So uh, that is when young. 28-year-old Native American named Juan Martinez, known as El Pipila, comes into the picture. So the reports of, of people who fought beside him described him as trustworthy, brave, strong, intelligent, and he had uh, mestuzo features, either from Otomis or Chichamecas, uh, which uh, are, different tri- are different kind of Native tribes, and, and he had a muscular build, obviously, when I tell you what he did. So what he did is, obviously, they, they were trying to get in and get the Spanish. That had, they've kind of barricaded themselves inside. Yeah. And they're shooting from the rooftops. And so what he does is he puts a long, flat stone tied to his back and he, to protect him from the musket fire of the Spanish troops. And he crawls to the door to, with a torch and some tar in his hands. Uh, and he lights um, the, the door on fire. Uh, so that the door can burn down and the uh, the Mexicans can run in and, and vanquish the Spanish. So uh, the insurgents, who basically far outnumbered the Spanish, in the warehouse stormed inside and killed all the soldiers and the civil uh, and the civil Spanish refugee. Uh, so some accounts say that Pipila was not alone. But went accompanied by other indigenous miners ready to fight for their freedom from the Spanish. Uh, But as the story is told today in Guanajuato, Pipila stood alone to break through the door. So this enabled Hidalgo's forces, who was, uh, he actually used to be a preacher, he was a father Hidalgo, and he was the famous one. Uh, that kind of declared the revolution in what they call El Grito. It was like the, the yell of independence. Uh, he was like, we're having enough of this. So he had his forces, and they were able to win their first victory at, at this battle uh, over the Spanish because of the bravery and valor of El Pipila. After this, he survived. He went, work, he went back to work in the mines until eventually he died, an old man. It says he died of gas exposure and dust from the mine but when i looked at some of the time frames it was like and like when they said he died and when they said he was born it seems like he was 81 years oh, old wow. so i don't know if that's a premature death or if that's uh, a long life i would think that's a long life for a native uh, a native person working in uh, the mines but uh, anyway he he lived a life and he was able to see a mexican gain its independence from the spanish so kind of a cool story of valor there Similar to it makes me think of every time I think about the story, I think of uh, Helms Deep when that one orc is running in. He's like
0: Legolas, shoot yeah. him
1: because he's running with the bomb into
0: the door, you know. And they shoot him a couple times, and he yeah. keeps running. Except for he's got a a big on, a big a heavy, heavy stone tied to his back to prevent him, And it's like a, the 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 first bulletproof vest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he had that level four plates on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I had another one here. This one was kind of interesting. So, so remember the the nuclear plant at Fukushima that ha- had issues, and it was kind of yeah yeah it had an earthquake, and then it was kind of in, in meltdown and everything else. So Fukushima was one of the one of the worst nuclear disasters, um, and it needed to be uh, contained. So there was a massive effort to clean up and contain all of the uh, kind of remaining debris and issues and everything that was, uh, that was needed to be done. Well, there was this one guy who was a, a, an engineer at Fukushima. His name was Yamata, Yamada, y- uh, Yas- Yasuteru Yamada. And he was 72 years old, and he was actually a cancer survivor. And as he was part of this effort to clean up and to kind of decontaminate everything after this nuclear um, disaster, uh, he was watching all of these young men being dosed with, like, massive amounts of radiation just day after day. And it just tore him, because they were helping clean up, and it tore him up inside. He knew that these young guys were getting... I mean, they 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 knew what radiation exposure was at this time. This wasn't that long ago. So he actually started a, a group that was uh, they called themselves the Skills Veteran Corps, and it was a volunteer force of elderly Japanese en- engineers and other helpers that took the that volunteered to take the place of these young men that were these younger guys that were there. And they he gathered. That uh, he was 72 years old, he gathered uh, almost 400 volunteers almost immediately of elderly Japanese people, elderly Japanese men, engineers, and helpers that hmm. to basically take the place of these young these young men. So they they started to to work, and yeah. uh, the the elderly volunteers they said that they accepted that the work at the plant and the, cleaning up this cleanup effort would take several years off their life, at least after a period of time, you know, it wasn't going to happen huh. immediately, but after a period of time, it was going to potentially shorten their life. And this Yamada, uh, guy said, he's I'm 72 years old and average, I probably have 13 or to 15 years left to live. If I am exposed to radiation cancer could take me in 20 or 30 years, which I'm not even going to live that long anyway. And so he said, these younger guys, they will Hmm. live that long for this cancer to develop. So therefore, us older ones have less chance of getting cancer before we die. And so I thought that was a really cool story, just of kind of the heroism of these elderly men that knew, they were like, hey, if this gives us cancer in 20 years, which it probably will— you know, we're probably not even gonna live that long anyway, so it is what it is. But you have these thirty-year-olds running around, uh, you know, twenty-five-year-olds, yeah. these young guys running around. They're gonna die prematurely. They're gonna have cancer in twenty to thirty years, and 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 so, to cr- to create a whole group of men of four hundred yeah. volunteers to say, yeah, I completely agree. We're gonna help protect the, 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 these younger these younger guys.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. And you think about what they did at Chernobyl, you know, that just, you have 30, you know, you have 14 or 30 seconds to be out there on this roof, get your shovel, go dump something out into the core uh, and get back as soon as you can. You know, that, I think we did an episode on that. We, we, we actually showed a scene of that on our, our podcast, on our TikTok and also our Instagram. And it's just, you know that that reminds me of you know what these old guys were do. The old guys are like, "Hey, no, we're going to take this uh, and and save these young men uh, their lives so that yeah. uh, they don't get injured." So I think it's yeah, so, so cool,
0: definitely um, a, a valiant uh, effort that they put in. Uh, I had one last story. Yeah. So this story was actually sent in by one of our most loyal listeners of the podcast. Nice. This is the story of Sergeant Alvin York. And this is kind of the story of, it's a story of valor, but it's also a story of just kind of, you know, a good old country boy, just, you know, whooping some Germans. Um, (laughs) Always love a
1: good old country boy whooping some Germans.
0: (laughs) uh, So, uh, Alvin York, some should call him York. So York was from Tennessee, and he was a very religious man, uh, and he actually hesitated to go to war because he knew that it would require him killing people. He did lots of uh, soul-searching and, and, and talking, and he was actually finally convinced that it was okay because it was for a good cause. So he, he enlisted, and he joined, joined the military. Or join the army. He actually did a really good job, kept very detailed journal of all of his experiences. And one of the first battles, actually the first battle that he was in was in uh, October 8th of 1918. Uh, this is World War One. So, oh, talk about world. I thought you were talking about World War Two. Well, this is this is, this is World War I, 1918. This is World War One Germans. That's a, towards the end of the war. Yeah, this is this is that's towards the end of the. Yep, war. Yep, it's almost it's almost the end of the war. So this this is the mustard gas Germans. Those are Kaiser Germans, not uh, Führer Germans, <laughs> not Nazi Germans. <laughs> so the Germans, uh, this this battle to kind of set it up. It was the Germans had all of these. Um, kind of these machine gun bunkers set up uh, that was kind of down this hill into this valley and kind of up a little other hill where they had these bunkers. And so the Americans were attacking through the valley towards the hill to a very important railroad that was behind these German uh, machine gun boxes, bunkers. And so they had to rush across the valley, attack the hill, and it was about several hundred yards um, that they had to go in order to get to the Germans. So they started running across the valley and re- they realized that they were actually being shot at from the machine guns from the front uh, as they attacked this hill across the valley, but they were they also was a separate, a secondary location of machine gunners that were kind of at their 3 o'clock, which kind of ended up being in their flanking position as they ran across the field. So they were getting shot by German machine guns in two different directions. Hmm. And uh, according to York's Journal, he said that the American men were being mowed down like mowing long grass. And it was just, he said it was a, a bloodbath. And so York and his team, they uh, were actually able to to get to one of the, the boxes, the, the, the bunkers, and flank one of these machine guns, and they actually captured the Germans. And they were standing in this bunker when they captured the Germans, but then I guess one of the other bunkers realized that this one had been captured, and so they, sh- they fired into the bunker that they just captured— and it killed six of his men, six men, wounded three other ones, and there was so now they had a lot of less guys to 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 capture the Germans that were in the in, in the bunker, and so York, his commanding officer, and, and the the uh, the command, the next in line commanding officer had both been killed, and so now he was this kind of relatively new guy, and he was now the highest ranking man left. So he told the men that were still there he said um you know guard these German prisoners shoot any other Germans use try to use this machine gun to do what you can he said I'm going to go and take out these other machine gun nests and so he ends up running kind of trying to flank these other these other machine gun nests and so this is a quote for him he said the machine guns and this is in his words so it's it's country style so he said them, he said, he said, them machine guns was spitting fire and cutting down the undergrowth all around me. Something awful. Every time I'd see a German, I just tacked him off. It was just like the old days. Sh- uh, it was just like the old shooting matches we had in the mountains of Tennessee, except for the targets here were much bigger. Oh, man. <laughs> talking about talking about the german soldiers yeah. so in the middle of this fight they were you know he was trying he was kind of attacking these different boxes uh, kind of one by one so in the middle of the fight there was six germans that kind of popped up and started charging towards york with their bayonets fixed it was about 25 30 yards away from his account he said i had a half a clip of my rifle left but my pistol was ready to go and then this is going back to quoting him he said attacked off the fifth the sixth man first then the fifth then the fourth and so on that just like the way you shoot wild turkeys at home we don't want the front ones to know that we're getting the back ones he said that way they keep on coming at you <laughs> which interesting tactic <laughs> that was yeah. an interesting tactic you know six guys are running at you you shoot the guys in the back first, he said. If I would have shot the guys in the front first, then the rest of them would have dropped down, and they would have just been able to overwhelm me with fire because I was only one guy. Yeah. Uh, but shooting them back to front made it so that they didn't know what was going on behind them, so they thought they thought guys six guys were still coming at him. He said. I then took my rifle and kept on to the machine guns. I'd take down a few more Germans, then holler at them to surrender. Then I'd tack off a few more, and then I'd holler again. Surrender. Um, Taking large casualties and thinking that there were more men than there were, the the, the German commanding officer called out to York in English, offering their surrender, and he accepted. Hmm. So How many people surrendered it in says, total? Uh, so it says, to this day, there is a memorial in France in the village of Châtel-Cherie that states, armed with a rifle and a pistol, he silenced a German battalion of 35 machine guns, killed 25 enemy soldiers, and captured hundred and thirty two <laughs> captured 132 soldiers wow yeah captured 132 soldiers killed 25 of them and uh, silenced 35 machine guns that's crazy it was kind of a cool story so york was he was promoted almost immediately he was given the distinguished service cross And then a few months later, he was actually presented with uh, the Medal of Honor. I think he was one of the first living soldiers to receive the Medal of Honor, which was kind of interesting. And then he, he survived the war. He went back, and he actually lived a life of extreme debt. He was not very good with his money, and there was many times people came to him wanting to buy the rights to his story, and he kept he would always turn them down. And then finally towards the end of his life he uh he sold the the rights to his story and they ended up making a movie in like I don't know the 50s or something like that maybe the yeah 50s or 60s about the Alvin York story so i think it was called i What's think that? it was called Sergeant called? Alvin York or something like that oh interesting um so kind of a cool story you know cool. bravery to the sense of like he just went and did it all by himself, and having the confidence to do it. But he he yeah, definitely saved cool. saved a lot of lives, and he didn't want to kill anybody, but he did what he had to to uh, to to. That per- reminds me of e-
1: Easy Easy Company, you know, yeah. uh, capturing the entire battalion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. You you were you were saying something?
0: No, I was just gonna say. You know, that's kind of a good uh, example of. You know, Valor, I guess. Uh, The movie was 1941. 1941 was when when the movie came out. It was called Sergeant Alvin York. Uh, Okay, cool. So, yeah. I think those are all kind of stories. Uh, That last one was kind of a war story. Uh, Another war story that I had, which is very uh, kind of well-known, they made a movie about it a couple years ago, Hacksaw Ridge, Uh, the story of Desmond Doss, who was uh he was a non-combatant during uh, World War two and he basically said i' I'll, I'll, I'll go to war, but I'm not going to carry a gun and so he ended up rescuing uh seventy over seventy five men one at a time while under fire from the enemy uh, at the same time refusing to uh, engage in combat uh, which was pretty pretty valiant in pretty and miraculous, itself. yeah. Oh, yeah. Good movie, too.
1: Yeah, great movie. Well, this has been a great episode. Lots of good examples of valor you know, on the battlefield, off the battlefield. Definitely shows a bravery in short spurts as well as long-duration uh, valor uh, examples. So thanks for sharing this. And also, thank you to our listener for sending in a story. We always love to hear from our, our listeners. Please reach out to us. We always love hearing your feedback feel free to send us a story or send us a something, a topic that you'd like to hear about. We're always willing to maybe do that research or maybe find someone that knows a little bit about that. Or if you have a cool story to tell, maybe reach out to us and maybe we'll have you on. Uh, we can talk about something cool. So we're always willing to hear that feedback and, and improve if we can. So we're, we're, we're building our creeds together. So let's go ahead
0: and, and do that together. Right, Ethan? Yeah, let's build that creed together.